So sometime in between, roughly in the time of 1668 to 1669, an artist that you may all know, whose name was Rembrandt, uh, painted his interpretation of the story that Jesus tells in the 15th chapter of Luke's Gospel. And it was one of the very last, if not the very last, painting that Rembrandt ever did, for he died in 1669. So we don't know for sure, but it was among, at least among the very last ones that he did. <clears throat> the painting itself is very, very large. It's eight feet high by four feet wide. So Jim, you're a man after Rembrandt's heart. <laughs> the scale of the art that you do as well. And he, and he uh, titled it appropriately, The Return of the Prodigal Son. It was done in oil on canvas, and it's currently, if you want to see the original, uh, you have to go to St. Petersburg, Russia, because it's housed in the Hermitage Museum uh, there um, in St. Petersburg. Now, in the fall of 1983, a, a Dutch Catholic priest, professor, writer, and theologian named uh, Henri Nouwen encountered a poster of this painting at a uh, small uh, home for the handicapped that he was working at in uh, in southern France, and it had a you just he saw it on the door of a colleague's office, and it had a profound impact on him. And, and it wasn't just the you know the richness of the colors and and everything; it was just the story that it was telling. And um, he was later able to go to the Hermitage, and because he knew a colleague was able to get him in. And he was able to spend literally hours just looking at and studying and viewing this painting. And he eventually wrote a book about it. And it's, it's from that book that a lot of the material that I'm going to present in this series of messages comes from. Now we're going to start it today. And the reason that I've kind of chosen this was that Nowen had this ability uh, to really go deep in his thinking. Uh, and to really plumb the depths of uh, emotion and what things meant. And so this book is largely this self-examination that uh, he went through. And so what I've done is I've sort of taken his self-examination and put it into words that hopefully will help us as we sort of look at this, uh, not only the painting, but reflect on the story that's behind it. Uh, now, one of the things that we're going to do in this is that normally, I think, when you hear the message or the story of the prodigal son preached, you hear the whole story. The whole story is actually very long, and there's a lot of different components or pieces to it. So what I'm going to do is we're just going to look at one piece at a time and kind of break it down that way so that rather than kind of looking at this, um, this whole large story in, in just at one point or one time, we can focus more on the individual events that are sort of taking place in this. And I think it's good to do this because this is one of those stories where when you hear it sort of presented in total, you then naturally tend to try to place yourself in the story, which was Jesus' intent, right? He wanted people, as they heard this, to sort of understand what he was saying. So I think we hear, you know, that this, uh, what this younger son did you know, he goes off, and we'll talk about that next week, about where he ended up in this far country and, and squandered all his, his possessions and his, his money and ended up, you know, basically feeding pigs in a pig trough. And we hear that, and we're like, well, you know, I never really did anything like that in my life. You know, I never went so far away from God that I ended up, you know, there and then had to come that far back. 
Um, or we read the story and we sort of look at the older son, you know, who, who had this attitude, right, when his, his younger brother comes back, very disapproving and, uh, and so forth. And so we may, may identify more with the older brother, the older son. But I think what will happen is, as we break this story down in pieces and we let Nowen's examination speak to us, what you're going to see, I think, what I certainly see, is that there are elements of all the characters in this story in each one of us. And that's including, I think, the fact that we're all on a journey ultimately to become the loving father. So hopefully this will, will, will be of some help as we sort of walk through this. And so we're going to look at the uh, very first part of the story, which is just the first three verses. And if you uh, have a Bible and want to follow along, we're going to be uh, in Luke chapter 15, uh, I will also have it up here on the screen for us. So this is Luke 15, verses 11 through 13, and this comes from the, the, uh, the Passion Translation. Then Jesus said, Once there was a father with two sons. The younger son came to his father and said, Father, don't you think it's time to give me the share of your estate that belongs to me? So the father went ahead and distributed among the two sons their inheritance. Shortly afterward, the younger son packed up all his belongings and traveled off to see the world. He journeyed to a far-off land where he soon wasted all he was given in a binge of extravagant and reckless living. What I want us to, to see here this morning is that the younger son's story provides us with a number of insights about our own relationship with God. Um, who is our father. And the first of, thing, of these things is that, uh, the obvious one, which is that the younger son radically rejected his father. Okay? One of the things that you kind of get when you read this is that Luke tells this story so simply and so matter-of-factly that it's sometimes difficult for us to really fully realize what's going on in this story. Uh, and what is happening here is an unheard-of event. It is hurtful, offensive, and in radical contradiction to the most venerated traditions of the time. Commentator Kenneth Bailey says that the son's manner of leaving is tantamount to wishing his father dead. In Bailey's own words, and I quote him, for over 15 years, I have been asking people of all walks of life, from Morocco to India and from Turkey to the Sudan, about the implications of a son's request for his inheritance while the father is still living. He says the answer is always the same, and the conversation runs very similarly to the, follow, the following. So he would ask, has anyone ever made such a request in your village? The answer is never. Exclamation point. Could anyone ever make such a request? And the answer is impossible! Exclamation point. If anyone ever did, what would happen? And the answer, well, his father would beat him, of course. Why? The request means he wants his father to die. Bailey explains that the son asks not only for the division of his inheritance, but also for the right to dispose of the part that he gets. And he, he, he goes on to say this, After signing over his possessions to his son, 
the father still has the right to live off the proceeds as long as he is alive. Here the younger son gets and thus is assumed to have demanded disposition to which even more explicitly he has no right to until the death of his father. The implication of father, I cannot wait for you to die underlies both of these requests. And so the son's leaving is therefore much more of an offensive act than it seems at face value or when you first read the story. It is, above all else, a heartless rejection of home, the home in which the son was born and nurtured. And as I said earlier, it's a break from the most precious and carefully upheld traditions in almost every community. When Luke writes that he left for a distant country, he indicates much more than the desire of a young man just to go off and see the world. He speaks about a drastic cutting loose from the way of living and thinking and acting that's been handed down to him through the generations as a sacred legacy. More than just disrespect, it's a betrayal of the treasured values of family and community. The distant country is a world in which everything considered holy at home is disregarded. This explanation is significant because it summons us to recognize the younger son in us. And while for some of us it may have taken the form of a larger rejection, many of us have preferred the distant country in many much more subtle ways. <clears throat> I think more than any other story of the gospel, the parable of the prodigal son expresses the boundlessness of the compassionate love of God. And so, for the Son and for us as well, leaving home is an outright rejection of that love. It's a denial of the spiritual reality that you and every part of your being belongs to God. That God holds you safe in this eternal embrace. And that you indeed are carved in the palms of God's hands and hidden in their shadows. Leaving home means ignoring the truth that God has fashioned you in secret, molded you in the depths of the earth and knitted you together in your mother's womb. Leaving home is living as though you do not yet have a home and must look far and wide to find one. Leaving home is, in one form or another, the radical rejection of our loving Father. The second lesson I think this teaches is us, us is that the younger son was deaf to the voice of love. You see, home is the center of our being where we can hear the voice that says, you are my beloved, and on you my favor rests. It's the same voice that gave life to the first Adam and spoke to Jesus, the second Adam. It's the same voice that speaks to all the children of God and sets them free to live in the midst of a dark world while remaining in the light. As the beloved of your heavenly Father, you can walk in the valley of darkness and no evil 
will you fear? As the beloved, you can cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, and cast out devils. As the beloved, you can suffer persecution without a desire for revenge or receive praise without using it as a proof of your goodness. As the beloved, you can be tortured and even killed without ever having to doubt that the love that has been given to you is stronger than death itself. As the beloved, you are free to live and to give life to others. Free also to die while giving life. Yet over and over again, we've left home. We have fled the hands of the blessing and run off to faraway places searching for what? Love. Somehow, we've become deaf to this voice that calls us the beloved. And we've left the only place that we can ever hear that voice. And we've gone off desperately hoping that we can find somewhere else what we can't find at home. The problem is that the true voice of love is very soft, very gentle. And speaks to us in the most hidden places of our being. It's not a boisterous voice. It doesn't force itself on us. It doesn't demand attention. It's a voice that can only be heard by those who allow themselves to be touched. Sensing the touch of God's blessing hands and hearing the voice that's calling me the beloved are one and the same. This became quite clear to the prophet Elijah. Elijah was standing on this mountain and he was prepared to meet God. And then this hurricane came, but God wasn't in the hurricane. And then came an earthquake and God wasn't in the earthquake. And then a fire and God wasn't there either. Finally, there came something that was very tender. Scripture calls it a soft gentle breeze, and others call it a small, still small voice. And when Elijah sensed this, he covered his face because he knew in that moment that God was present. In the tenderness of the Lord, voice was touch, and touch was voice. But there are many other voices, so many other voices. And these voices are loud and they're full of promises and they're very seductive. These voices say, go out and prove that you are something. Go out and prove your worth. See, soon after Jesus heard this voice calling him the beloved, He was led into the desert to hear those other voices. They told him to prove that he was worth love by being successful and popular and powerful. Those same voices are not unfamiliar to us at all. They're always there, and they're always reaching into those inner places where we question our own goodness and doubt our own self-worth. 
they suggest that we are not going to be loved without having earned it through some sort of determined effort or hard work. They want us to prove to ourselves and to others that we are worth being loved. And they keep pushing us to do everything possible to gain acceptance. And they deny very loudly that love is a free gift. See, we leave, we leave home every time we lose faith in the voice that calls us the beloved. And we follow the voices that offer a great variety of ways to supposedly win the love that we so much desire. Almost from the moment that we had ears to hear, we began to hear those voices. And they've stayed with us ever since. They've come to us through parents, friends, teachers, colleagues. But most of all, they have come and still come through the mass media that surrounds us. And they say things like, <clears throat> show me that you're a good boy. You had better be better than that friend of yours. How are your grades? Are you sure you're going to make it through school? I sure hope that you can make it on your own. What are you connect, where, who are you connected with? Are you sure you want to be friends with those people? These trophies certainly show how good a player you were. Don't show your weakness. You'll be used. Have you made all the arrangements for your old age? When you stop being productive, people lose interest in you. Now, as long as we remain in touch with the voice that calls us the beloved, these questions and counsels are quite harmless. Parents, friends, teachers, and even those who speak to us through the media, most of the time are very sincere in their concern. Their warnings and their advice are well-intended. And in fact, we could even view them as the limited expression of human love, knowing that God's divine love is unlimited. But when we forget that the voice of the first, that voice that is unconditional love that speaks to us of unconditional love, then these innocent-sounding suggestions can easily start dominating our life and, and pull us once again into the distant country. And honestly, it's not very hard for us to know when this starts happening. Anger and resentment and jealousy and desire for revenge and lust and greed and antagonisms, and rivalries are all obvious signs that we've left home. And that just happens, unfortunately, very easily. When we pay careful attention to what goes, goes on in our mind from moment to moment, we come to the disconcerting discovery that there are very few moments during the day when we're really free from these dark emotions and passions and feelings. 
And so we're constantly falling back into this old trap before we're really even aware that we're in it. And we find ourselves wondering, well, why did that person hurt me or reject me or why didn't they pay attention to me? We find ourselves brooding about somebody else's success or our own loneliness or the way that the world abuses us. Or maybe all of a sudden we just find ourselves daydreaming about becoming rich and powerful and famous. All of these are mental games. And when you really look at them, <clears throat> what they're revealing to us is the fragility of our own faith. We stopped believing that we are the beloved one of God on whom his favor rests. We're so afraid of being disliked and blamed and put aside and passed over and ignored and persecuted and killed that we're constantly developing these strategies to defend ourselves and thereby assure ourselves of the love that we think we need and deserve. And when we do that, we move away from our father's home and we choose to live in a distant country. The third lesson that I think we get from the younger son is that he was searching for love where it cannot be found. And the question that I think is at issue here is, well, who do we belong to? To whom do we belong? To God or to the world? Many of our, our daily preoccupations suggest that we belong a little bit more to the world, maybe a lot, than we do to God. A little bit of criticism will make us angry. A little bit of rejection will make us depressed. We get a little praise and our spirits go up. We get a little success. We get all excited about it. See, it takes very little to move us up and down. We're kind of like a small boat on the ocean just completely at mercy of the waves. Waves go up, waves go down. We're just bobbing along. And so all of the time and the energy that we spend in keeping some sort of balance and preventing ourselves from being tipped over and drowning shows us that life is mostly a struggle for survival. Not a holy struggle, but an anxious struggle. The results from the mistaken idea that it's the world who defines us. As long as we keep asking that famous question that Sally Field sort of in intimated by asking, do you love me? Do you really love me? You're giving all of the power to the voices of the world. And you're putting yourself in bondage to the world because the world is full of ifs. The world says, yes, I love you if you are good looking, if you are intelligent, if you are wealthy. 
I love you if you have a good education, if you have a good job, if you have good connections. I love you if you produce a lot, if you sell a lot, or if you buy a lot. There is an endless variety of ifs in the world. Hidden in the love that the world is giving back to you. And the ifs are what enslave us because it's impossible to respond adequately to all of them. See, the world's love is and always will be conditional. And as long as we keep looking for the true self in the world of conditional love, we're going to remain hooked to the world, trying, failing, trying again, failing, etc. It's a world that fosters addictions because what it offers cannot satisfy the deepest craving of our heart. And I think addiction may be the best word to explain the lostness that so deeply permeates contemporary society. Our addictions make us cling to what the world proclaims as keys to self-fulfillment, the accumulation of wealth and power, attainment of status and admiration, lavish consumption of food and drink, sexual gratification without distinguishing between lust and love. These addictions create expectations that cannot but fail to satisfy our deepest needs. And as long as we live with the world's delusions, our addictions condemn us to futile quests in the distant country, leaving us to face an endless series of disillusionments while our sense of self remains unfulfilled. And in these days of increasing addictions, we've wandered far, far away from our Father's house. The addicted life can aptly be designated a life lived in a distant country. And it's from there that this cry of deliverance raises up within us. And so you are the younger son. Every time you search for unconditional love, in a place where it cannot be found. <clears throat> but there is good news. Gospel means good news. And the good news is that God has never pulled back his arms, never withheld his blessing, never stopped considering you his son or daughter, his beloved one. But the Father couldn't compel you to stay home. He couldn't force his love on his beloved. He had to let you go in freedom. Even though he knew the pain that it was going to cause you and him. It was love itself that prevented him from keeping you home at all costs. 
It was love itself that allowed him to let you find your own life, even with the risk of losing it in the process. And so it is here that the mystery of your life is unveiled. You are loved so much that you are left free to leave home. See, the blessing is there and was there from the very beginning. You've left it in one way or another, and perhaps you keep on leaving it. But the Father is always looking for you with outstretched arms to receive you back and to whisper once again in your ear, you are my beloved and on you my favor rests. Amen. Amen. So next week we will look at the return of the younger son how that played out and how we can see ourselves in that as well. Bless each and every person here as they go out. Help them this week as in all weeks to truly live by your book. To see people the way you see them and to bring your kingdom to bear on the situations that they go through. In doing so, we give you blessing and honor and praise and glory. I ask all this now in the name of Jesus. Amen.